Welcome to The Full English, the podcast that explores Englishness through the lens of food. I've got a fantastic interview in this episode with the author and economist Harjun Chang. Harjun is a world-renowned economist, a professor of economics at SOAS University, and the author of many books, including Economics, A User's Guide, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, and Kicking Away the Ladder. His most recent book is Edible Economics, which in my view is a feast of culinary anecdote combined with easy-to-learn lessons about the economy. The interview you're about to hear explores some of the key themes in edible economics, including how the field of economics has become something of a monoculture, and why free trade is not only bad advice for developing countries, but it's also hypocritical advice when it comes from rich nations like Britain and the US. And in a quick bit of other news, the Full English has been shortlisted for a Fortnum & Mason's Food Award, and we're slowly creeping up the podcast charts as well. So thank you so much for your support in helping to make that happen. As always, if you like the show, please share it. And if you want to help make this show happen, then you can give us £3 a month over on patreon.com forward slash full English. The Full English is produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Forrest DLG does the mixing and the sound design. Um, Hajun, thank you so much for coming on The Full English Podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you basically why you ended up writing a book about food because oh, your right. work that I'm, I'm I was just saying to you before that I'm yeah. familiar with your work from from studying at SOAS uh -huh. I know that to be about criticizing the World Bank criticizing uh -huh. the IMF it's about development really yeah. and here we are with a book about food uh -huh. how did that happen? <laughs> yeah well the short answer is uh, no, why not you know I, I love uh, economics I love food you know I love cooking eating you know reading about food you know going uh, food shopping so uh, I, you know, basically combined uh, two of my greatest uh, passions, and uh, here's the book. <laughs> But yeah, on a more serious note, no, I uh, have been in the last uh, at least uh, 15 years uh, engaged in what I call my personal crusade for mass economic literacy because mm. you know it, uh, increasingly I've uh, come to realize that uh, in a capitalist economy, especially this very kind of market-driven variety of uh, capitalism that uh, we are living in these days, uh, you know, everything has uh, basically economic logic intervening uh, in it. So, you know, everything is supposed to justify its uh, existence in terms of uh, economic value it creates, you know, so mm -hmm. the, the, whether it's uh, teaching of ancient languages in universities or the preservation of uh, old uh, buildings. You know, mm. you know I've uh, even met some British people who try to defend the monarchy in terms of the tourist revenue that it generates. <laughs> you know, I'm not a monarchist. I'm actually anti-monarchist, but what a demeaning, ridiculous way right. of justifying the institution that is supposed to be at the foundation of your society. Yeah. You know, it's come to that. So... In that kind of society, unless all citizens uh, know at least some economics, yeah, you know, that, that democracy is meaningless because uh, then it becomes like uh, voting in a talent show, like I don't know that uh, uh, X Factor. Yeah, <laughs> so I've uh, taken it upon myself uh, to bring economics uh, to the citizens, yeah, mm. and have uh, written a number of kind of uh, easily accessible economics books, uh, but. With this book, I wanted to bring in a new audience. I mean, people mm. who are not 
interested in the economics at all, yeah. So that, that when they walk past uh, the front court, even if uh, there are some economics books, uh, they wouldn't even uh, look at them. Mm. But that uh, what if uh, these people get to read about economics because they want to read about uh, something else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the full stories in the book are a bit like uh, the ice cream that some of your mothers might have offered <laughs> as an inducement uh, to eat uh, your greens. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but uh, my bribery is, uh, because it is a bribery. It's actually better than uh, your mom's bribery because <laughs> uh, my bribery comes first. Yeah. Yeah. My ice cream comes first. And that uh, if you don't uh, want, uh, you can just uh, eat the ice cream and uh, skip uh, the greens. <laughs> but you know, the hope is that uh, food st- uh, transition from food stories into economic stories is uh, smooth enough, yeah. engaging enough that you know people keep uh, reading on by mistake and they end up reading about economics. And uh, indeed, I mean, few people. You know, personally, few people through reviews on, say, Amazon, they mm. have said. I picked this book up uh, thinking it's about food, that uh, at least uh, economics of food. And then I realized it isn't, but I am glad that I ended up uh, reading about economics because otherwise I wouldn't have read about it at all. So, yeah, yeah, I think I'm uh, making a bit of uh, progress here. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It feels almost like more like you're smuggling the greens into the ice cream, which doesn't sound very delicious. But in in terms of a metaphor, (laughs) it's kind of true. And it is quite delicious. It's a good book to read. And you do it. Everything kind of flows on from... You start with one thing and then you end up learning That's about right. something you didn't expect. Yeah. But nevertheless, let's start with, uh, we'll, we'll keep to the format of that. We'll have the ice cream first and the greens later. Yep. Um, so I want to ask you first uh-huh. a bit about food. And there's some anecdotes at the st- in the start of the mm-hmm. book about what food was like in, in this country, in Britain, when you first arrived and what yeah. kind of British attitudes were to, <laughs> to food. Could you tell me a bit about what you found when you yeah, were first Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to put it, Bluntly, I mean, before coming here, I hadn't realized that food could taste so bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's that uh, a bit of it is uh, my Korean bias, you know, we use a lot of chili, garlic, you know, not so much uh, kind of tropical spices, but that the food is that, uh, very in your face. And, mm. you know, British food at the time was, uh, you know, well, at least to me, you know, under seasons, there was no garlic, there was no chili, you know, everything was boiled to death, you know? mm. And uh, food was, in one word, uh, very uninteresting. Yeah? When did you first arrive in London? Oh, I arrived in uh, 1986. Mm-hmm. I arrived in 1986 uh, to do my graduate studies in economics at the University of Cambridge. And yeah, of course, uh, London had better food, but mm. uh, you know, the, in, in Cambridge, I mean... The, and you must have been eating at the Cambridge Canteen. That's right, yeah. Institutional that, that cooking yeah. in any country is uh, not great. Yeah, <laughs> So college food is uh, awful. And then... Yeah, Cambridge being a small town, uh, there were very few uh, restaurants where things were edible. Is there any dish that really sticks out to you or any kind of meal or occasion that you remember being especially bad? Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't have it because uh, the idea horrified me. I mean, I went to this uh, pizza restaurant chain, I mean, now defunct, but uh, at the time quite uh, widespread, uh, called Pizza Land, which offered on option to, to his customers to have their pizza topped with a baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> because British people at the time were very, very conservative and uh, anything they considered foreign, they avoided quite religiously. Yeah. 
So these uh, restaurants are throwing in a security blanket, you know, that uh, hold on to your potatoes if that, <laughs> uh, you cannot deal with these uh, foreign ingredients like uh, tomato and mozzarella and anchovies. And yeah, so that, that uh, was just that uh, so shocking. Uh, but, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that Britain is uh, now one of the, the best and most exciting places to eat in mm. the world because uh, my theory is that they had that really bad food, but sometime in the mid-90s, late-90s, the nation had a collective epiphany that their food sucks. Yeah? <laughs> no, it, it was a great thing. Once that uh, they did that, I mean, yeah. they became completely open-minded because, that, that uh, you know, you go to Italy, you know, you have great Italian food, but not much else. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But here, the, you know, once they, the people accepted that their own food is not very good, uh, you know, why should you prefer Mexican over Korean or the Turkish over Indian? You know, anything tastes fine. Yeah? yeah. I mean, the other day I was at, uh, walking by some food court in Covent Garden and there were these people selling Uzbek dumplings, you know. Right. Someone told me that there's a uh, restaurant in Birmingham serving fusion Korean and Peruvian food, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Peruvian food itself is a great uh, fusion food because uh, not only is there the Inca root and Spanish at the kind of a tree trunk, uh, you have the foliage and uh, the flowers uh, that come from China, mm. uh, Japan, you know, because a lot of uh, the poor Chinese and Japanese people went to the Peru as uh, indentured laborers. Uh, so these were kind of uh, basically slaves uh, for pick, fixed term mm. tenure. Uh, as uh, the indentured laborers and the food is a uh, very strong influence by the Japanese and uh, Chinese cooking. So, mm. you know, if uh, you mix it with Korean, you have all the <laughs> main Northeast Asian food, you know, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, and uh, Iberian food and uh, Inca food. So, yeah, I mean, uh, this country has uh, now a really excellent culinary uh, culture. But in those days, you know, but... When I talk to older people, mm. you know, they give me even worse uh, stories. I mean, I have this American friend who was a uh, exchange student in Oxford in the seventies, and she said that when she wanted to get uh, olive oil uh, to cook some pasta mm. in Oxford, uh, the only place that uh, she could get olive oil was at uh, the pharmacy huh? mm. because that uh, some people used it to soften the earwax, but it was not food <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 yeah. i mean so that you say the same thing in the book which is that uh, what you're saying now is that um british food got better because we accepted that traditional british food was bad Mm-mm. but british food itself has uh, become but uh, well, uh much much better i want to do a quick yeah. a quick fire round with you Mm-mm. i'm going to ask you a few traditional british food items and you tell me if you tried them and if you like them uh-uh. or not. so the first one i don't know if you drink alcohol I do. Yeah. Have you tried a pint of ale in a in a British pub? Where ale, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. You like it? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, spotted dick. Uh, yeah, I've eaten eaten it a few times in college canteen. I wasn't too impressed. It sounds like the kind of thing you get in yeah. Cambridge University. <laughs> uh, toad in the hole. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Fan. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. A bit bland though, maybe. Yeah, it is. I mean, I uh, probably need that uh, English mustard uh, to eat it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Last one, fish finger sandwich. Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. You're a fan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. How do you make your fish? Do you add, well, add I don't make it. it. I have uh, eaten it. Uh, yeah. I found it only recently. I've heard about it. I, I found a place uh, near Soas that uh, which uh, serves it. And yeah, I love it. Yeah. That, that That's interesting. So, so it's not all bad, but the fact is, you know, British food has become a lot better by 
embracing a diverse yeah, range exactly, of foods. Yeah, yeah. Um, you use that as a metaphor for how the world of economics, the mm. ideas in economics have changed. Yeah. And so at the same time as British food becoming much more diversified, the field of economics has become far less diversified. Can you explain yeah, what exactly. you mean Yeah, exactly. I that? mean, that's uh, been a very sad thing uh, personally, but also a big problem uh, for the world because... You know, until the 1970s, I mean, uh, many different uh, schools of economics, many different types of economics uh, existed. So mm. not only were there, you know, neoclassical economics, uh, which is the dominant type of economics these days, there were people doing classical economics, uh, so mm. following uh, the, the theories of uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, they were Marxists, they were Keynesians, they were the Schumpeterians, mm. following this guy, the Austrian-American economist, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who basically invented the economics of innovation. Mm. You know, there were the people doing uh, so-called Austrian economics, uh, so this is a more extreme form of uh, free market Economics are uh, then you normally see these days, you know, represented by Friedrich von Hayek, you know, I mean, institutionalist, behavioralism, I mean, at least uh, nine major schools, uh, mm -hmm. the, but the, the easily 20 you included uh, some of the more recent and uh, smaller schools are uh, like the feminist school, the ecological school. So the, all these are the different economic traditions coexisted and uh, competed with each other. Sometimes they had a death match, but, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they had a more cordial debate and uh, learned uh, from each other. And it was a bit like uh, the British uh, food scene today, you know, mm. there are many different traditions, all proud of uh, themselves. But, you know, they have to accept that there are other equally good culinary cultures and uh, they have to compete with them, but also they uh, learn from each other, they steal mm. from each other, you know, they sometimes even create fusion, uh, mm. like uh, the, the, the ones I uh, have already talked about, and many, many other forms, yeah. Mm. So it was quite exciting, but unfortunately for various complicated reasons that I cannot really go into now, mm. the subject has become dominated by one particular school of economics uh, called neoclassical school. Mm. I'm not Saying that this school is uh, particularly bad uh, or particularly good, you know, I mean, my view is that all different schools of economics have their strengths and weaknesses because mm -hmm. they were created to explain different things. You know, they have uh, different assumptions about human nature, the assumptions about the way human beings uh, relate to each other different assumptions about how society functions, mm. and, of course, uh, different theories of uh, how the economy evolves, you know? mm. I mean, how politics uh, interacts with uh, economics, you know. They have uh, the different uh, assumptions about, you know, ethical foundations of uh, mm. economics. Uh, so, you know, all schools are good at uh, something, bad mm. at some other things, you know. So if you want uh, spicy food, uh, you know, you shouldn't go to a British or a Polish <laughs> restaurant, yeah? <laughs> yeah? But, you know, that is not to say that spicy food is uh, the superior, you know? Yeah, you just uh, want different things, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I uh, love spicy food, but uh, sometimes I don't want any uh, mm. chili, you know? I mm -hmm. don't want any spices, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the fact that one school has become almost completely dominant has made our intellectual diet in economics uh, very, very poor because mm. uh, you are looking at things only with one perspective. Yeah? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the, when the world is actually very, very complex and mm. it's uh, impossible to understand the world with just one economic theory, you know, the, my favorite example in this regard is uh, Singapore, you know, that uh, when you hear about Singapore in standard economics books and in the financial press, you will only hear about this uh, free trade policy and its welcoming attitude towards uh, foreign investors, mm -hmm. but you will never be told that 90% of land in Singapore is owned by the government. 85% of housing is uh, supplied by the government-owned uh, housing corporation, mm -hmm. and a staggering 22% of uh, GDP is produced by state-owned enterprises. Yeah? Mm. So when uh, you know Boris Johnson and his uh, uh, people were arguing that oh, with Brexit, Britain is going to become you know Singapore on the Thames, I was uh, uh, laughing my head off. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, do they even know that uh, in order to become like Singapore, they need to nationalize 90% of the land? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> we nationalized all the uh, companies they privatized in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. and more because at the time, uh, the state-owned enterprises, in, mm -hmm. uh, even at the height of uh, state ownership, in this country, state-owned enterprises were producing only about 15% of GDP. So mm. you have to rationalize, uh, re-nationalize all the uh, state-owned companies uh, that you had uh, privatized, and then uh, nationalize, you, you know, mm. the equivalent of 50% more of uh, what you have just re-nationalized. So you know, I mean, I often uh, challenge my graduate students, you know, to give me one economic theory that can single-handedly explain Singapore. There's right. no such theory because it's a combination of uh, the socialist theory and the free market theory, mm. which uh, came about only because Singapore had uh, made very pragmatic decisions on what it needs, you know, mm. given its geopolitical location, given its uh, status as a the, the very small city-state with uh, very little land, yeah, mm. where housing is uh, extremely important. yeah. Mm. You know, I, this is uh, a more extreme example, but uh, when you look at the real world, I mean, countries actually use uh, a variety of uh, economic theories uh, to cope with the complexity of the world. Yeah? Mm. Unfortunately, with the economies becoming more, more and more kind of... Uh, of a kind of intellectual monocropping, now that uh, people are using uh, theories that are not suited uh, to the problems uh, that they are uh, trying to tackle. Yeah? Right, right, right. That makes sense. Mm. I feel like on one level, what you're saying is like, whatever economic theory would become dominant, um, to have only mono diet, let's say, to eat only exactly, one thing yeah. is not good in and of itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I naturally love Korean food, but uh, if I have to eat Korean food all the time, you know, yeah. It'll be so boring and, yeah. you know, I wouldn't like it. And know? then on the other level, I think that the economic discipline that has or the economic way of thinking as well as discipline within the field um, that has become dominant is this thing called neoclassical economics. That's right, and, yeah. and to give a quick summary of that, that would mean that it's, it's a form of economic thinking that um, takes inspiration from classical economics, which you said uh, Adam Smith mm -hmm. is, a, is a key tribune of, and broadly is, um, believes in free markets, quote-unquote, yeah. and, and free trade. Mm -hmm. um, and there are kind of key issues with that, I think. And maybe one of the ways we can talk about uh, one of those key issues is on in your chapter that is on prawns. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what I find really intriguing about the book. This is the kind of the smuggling in of the greens with the ice cream. Because we start with prawns, yeah. then the chapter goes to insects, uh -huh. and then we go to silkworms, yeah. I think. Uh, and then we end up with a with a discussion about protectionism. That's right. So, <laughs> I know that's a bit of a leap, but maybe you can explain how, how we yes, get Yes, 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 yeah. So that 
developing countries uh, have been told time and again that you know you need to expose yourselves uh, to international competition. That's uh, the only way to uh, grow and develop. And almost all the, the rich countries, with the possible exception of uh, Japan and Korea, have uh, succeeded through free trade. But uh, when you actually uh, look at the evidence, this is opposite what of uh, what happened. You know, the, mm. all these uh, rich countries became rich through protectionism, and then uh, they adopted uh, free trade because uh, they are now less uh, trade of competition. So I, the way I tell this story is uh, to start uh, with uh, you know prawn and shrimp, yeah, and yeah, to say that I that thought these were basically the same things uh, yeah. that. Uh, which are called differently in different uh, parts of the world. So the, the British tend to call it the same thing, uh, prawns, uh, Americans, uh, shrimps. Uh, uh, but actually, they, it turns out that they are biologically slightly different, uh, prawn and shrimp. But <laughs> I don't care because it's a tasty thing, you know, and yeah. a lot of uh, people love this. So much so that actually this uh, prawn farms are cropping up in tropical and semi-tropical mm. Asian countries, uh, especially uh, and these construction of these uh, the prone farms uh, basically have uh, led to destruction of a uh, huge uh, tract of uh, the mangrove uh, forest, uh, which is uh, very important in the environmental the conservation. So mm. people like it so much uh, to the extent of actually causing this uh, major environmental damage. But the same people who cannot eat enough uh, prawns, uh, they are not willing to eat uh, insects, yeah? despite right. the fact that insects are you know, the environmentally least damaging uh, source of animal protein. Yeah? Mm. I mean, it hardly generates any greenhouse gases. It uses little land, uh, little water. And obviously, when you look at a prawn, it does look... Yeah, exactly. Like I mean, insect. biologically, they are very close uh, relatives. They are basically cousins. Yeah, they right. belong to this uh, the bigger family called arthropods, mm -hmm. and uh, the, they are subgroups in the, the arthropod uh, family. So, you know, the strangest uh, taboo for me is uh, unwillingness uh, to eat insect by people who love uh, prawns and yeah. uh, lobster and langoustine. You know why? You know <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, archaeologist, a uh, friend of mine, this uh, Cambridge professor called uh, Martin Jones, uh, told me that actually it, uh, it's uh, only the European culture that uh, has uh, this aversion to insect eating. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the other people eat uh, insects, you know, the, the Chinese, the Mexicans, the Thais, they are famous for it. Mm -hmm. And we also ate uh, a lot of uh, the insects that, uh, in my childhood days in Korea. You know, I particularly love deep-fried locusts, uh, grasshoppers, you know. Mm -hmm like uh, the Mexican chapulines, yeah? But the most uh, popular insect uh, we ate was this uh, thing uh, called bandegi, which literally means uh, pupa. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a pupa of a particular insect, uh, which is uh, the silkworm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So basically, Korea in my childhood had uh, quite a big silk industry, and uh, these, uh, you know, Silicon pupa were basically byproducts of the industry because that when they take out the silk threads mm -hmm. from the cocoon, what is left behind is this pupa, which they don't want. So mm. you know, they sold it, this pupa 
onto street peddlers uh, who cook it uh, on a makeshift uh, kind of cooker, mm-hmm. on a wheelbarrow kind of thing, and that that was cheap and nutritious. You know, it tastes like uh, let's say gamey bacon. You know, that is uh, quite uh, tasty. Mm. I mean, we we don't eat uh, insects uh, very much anymore because uh, the silk industry has uh, disappeared uh, because now we are. Making mobile phones and uh, you know automobiles and microchips. I mean, grasshoppers uh, disappeared because we started using a lot of uh, pesticides, and now these uh, grasshoppers are very expensive. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, so that uh, we don't eat uh, these insects uh, anymore. But uh, you know, this was uh, because the uh, popularity of this uh, silicon pupa bandegi was because of our silk industry. But that uh, you know. Uh, even more successful in the silk uh, was uh, Japan, which uh, in the 1950s and early 60s was the biggest uh, silk producing nation in the uh, silk textile producing nation in the world. And yeah, I mean, they, it, silk was uh, the biggest export item of Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is that uh, when the, the, at the time. The Japanese uh, companies and governments were trying to develop uh, automobile industry, and you know, in in 1958, uh, Toyota made this uh, first export uh, to the United States. Uh, this uh, small car model called Toyopet, uh, as you can guess from the name, it was uh, more of a kind of four wheels and an ashtray kind of a car, <laughs> and yeah, it was a total. Flop, yeah. Mm. Such a flop that Toyota officially withdrew the pro- product from the market. So it was like uh, that scene in Men in Black, yeah, the neuralizer. This <laughs> 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 car was never it. here. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, just forget about it. Yeah. So that that caused a huge controversy in Japan. You know, mm. a lot of uh, Japanese uh, people, especially economists, argued, look, uh, this is what happens when country like Japan, which is uh, rich in labor and poor in capital, of course, in uh, relative terms tries to export capital-intensive product like uh, the automobile. Yeah? Mm. We should stick to labor-intensive products like silk. Yeah? Now, lucky, luckily for Japan and uh, luckily for the rest of the world, indeed, uh, which uh, benefited subsequently from uh, the better designed and uh, more fuel-efficient Japanese cars, uh, protection is won the day. And uh, Japan kept uh, the protecting its uh, the, the car industry for another 10, 15 years, at which point uh, the, it became uh, one of the most uh, competitive uh, industry. Yeah? Mm. Sorry, the, one of the most competitive automobile industry in the world. Yeah? So the lesson here is that, uh, you know, initially when the, your economies are technologically backward, the government uh, basically needs to protect and nurture its uh, young Mm. industries against uh, competition from superior foreign producers in the same way that we protect and nurture children Mm. until they grow up and can compete with others in the uh, other uh, labor market. Mm -hmm. Now, this uh, theory, uh, amazingly, was not invented in Japan. It was invented in the United States of America by none other than the very first uh, finance minister, what they call the treasury secretary of the country, called Alexander Hamilton. That's the guy you see on the $10 bill or the currently popular hip-hop musical. So Hamilton basically, yeah, he even invented the name, Infant Industry. Yeah? Mm. He said that, uh, you know, our 
industries like uh, babies uh, compared to British industries, which are far superior. And uh, we need to protect these industries until they grow up yeah, by giving them not just uh, trade protection, but mm. certain amount of subsidies that are pro- providing them with uh, better infrastructure. You know, it was uh, quite a visionary economic uh, the planning document. Because to clarify, to protect the industry would mean um, to stop foreign exports, say you want to protect cars, coming into the country oh, yeah, at exactly. a really cheap price, already very yeah. developed. And that if you kind of prevent those yeah. from coming in um, and you put some more money into that sector, then you can develop your own cars, your own industry. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, that, that, you know, that in another chapter called Noodle, I talk about the Korean car industry. And mm-hmm. there I point out that, yeah, the Hyundai, the, the now the world famous uh, the Korean car manufacturer, the, which is the third largest manufacturer in the world uh, mm-hmm. at the moment, when it uh, started producing its uh, own model of cars, which was in 1976, uh, it was uh, producing 10,000 cars a year. Yeah? In the mm-hmm. same year, Ford was producing 1.9 million. General Motors was uh, producing 4.8 million. So if I uh, took a time machine, went back to 1976 and told people, look, uh, there's this uh, two-bit car company in the, this uh, lower middle-income country called South Korea, which uh, currently produces uh, 0.5% of uh, Ford's output mm-hmm. and 0.2% of uh, General Motors' uh, the output. But give it just over 30 years, it'll be bigger than Ford. In under 40 years, uh, it'll be bigger than General Motors. People would have uh, put me in a mental hospital. Yeah. <laughs> But this is what happened. But yeah. in order to make that happen, South mm. Korea banned the importation of all foreign cars until 1988. Yeah? Mm. And uh, it then uh, liberalized importation of other cars. But uh, Japanese cars, they, uh, their imports were banned until 1998 because uh, that was the closest uh, competitor. Yeah? So you have to do these things, uh, which means that uh, you know Korean cars uh, became quite decent by the, the say late 1980s. But you know, at, at least uh, for the first uh, 15 years, uh, they had to drive around in that uh, really awful cars. Yeah? Mm. And as you say, that some of these ideas were developed in places like America and the UK. And well, certainly these, these policies were implemented in places like America and the UK and the, much of the developed world. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, these are the same places that are pushing um, for free trade. That's uh, right, yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, people don't know their own history very well. You right. Know? I mean, Britain prides itself uh, to be the first you know, modern free trading nation. But uh, in fact, it is the country that actually invented, in practice, uh, infant industry protection. Because mm-hmm. that, uh, Hamilton was actually inspired by the economic policies of uh, Robert Walpole, uh, the first uh, British prime minister. And like uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Hamilton's uh, political archenemy, who was in favor of uh, free trade, yeah, on the ground that by selling things like cotton and tobacco, Mm. Of course, I never mentioned the slaves. Uh, to European countries, they could actually buy uh, European uh, manufactured goods that uh, which are not only better but also cheaper. Yeah? Mm. So the people like Jefferson accused the Hamilton of being on Walpolean. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that uh, Walpole is uh, the kind of uh, the model of you know interventionist, you know protectionist that mm. uh, police maker, and they were accusing Hamilton of uh, being a Walpolean. So, mm. yeah, so uh, it's amazing. I mean, how all these countries uh, did these things in the past, and then you know, after they become uh, developed, uh, start preaching something else. Uh, so borrowing this expression from the 
18th century German economist, uh, sorry, 19th century German economist, uh, Friedrich List, uh, I uh, wrote this book titled Kicking Away the Ladder. So List uh, said that, you know, British are telling us Germans, uh, Americans to do free trade, but when did uh, Britain uh, do free trade? Mm. Mm. Only after it became rich. So this is like someone climbing up to the top uh, on a ladder and then kicking that ladder away so that other countries cannot follow. Mm. So, the, you know, I was uh, pointing out that, you know, there's uh, at best that uh, hi- ignorance of their own history, but probably kind of hypocrisy yeah, mm. in which uh, they preach uh, something uh, that they didn't practice mm. at the stage of development where the, all these uh, poor countries are. Yeah. I feel like that criticism is a really good thread that runs throughout this book. It also runs throughout your work in general. And mm-hmm. I guess I would say to listeners to check out the book if you want to hear more about that. There's also the chapter on beef, which I kind of wanted to ask you about, but I think we should move on, is really good on this. Um, <laughs> so I'd definitely start there. Thank you. Instead, let's let's talk a mm. bit about spices. Mm. Um, I was interested to hear, first of all, about your relationship to spice. Uh, uh, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, I must uh, point out that, uh, you know, Korea, although it had tastier food, uh, was even more of a culinary island uh, than Britain in my childhood. Mm. So basically, other than heavily Americanized uh, French and Italian food, you didn't have any European food, you know. We had good Japanese and good Chinese, but I mean, we, I never tasted, say, Thai food or Vietnamese food. Uh, despite yeah, these countries being so close, pretty close, yeah. yeah. So uh, I had no exposure to the Indian food, and when I first uh, came here and tasted Indian food, I just uh, didn't like it. Yeah. Mm. So I used to say, "Ah, oh, this is uh, because uh, they don't use uh, garlic they, uh, as much as Koreans do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't use uh, soy sauce, and yeah. But uh, later I come to love Indian food. You know, I'm. I'm I, I mean, I can live but uh, six months without eating Korean food, but mm. Indian food or South Asian food, uh, the more correctly, I I begin to miss if I don't eat it uh, for a few weeks, you know. So, mm. I mean, now I love it, but uh, at the time, I I just didn't like it. And thinking back, I think it was because I just couldn't handle all these uh, complex flavors uh, that this mixture, but at least uh, several spices uh, that uh, they have in each Indian dish. Yeah? Mm. Because uh, Korea being quite up in the north, uh, we didn't have uh, these uh, tropical spices. Mm. And it was uh, too poor to import uh, any of this. So other than mustard and chili that grow in Korea, I mean, what other spices uh, did I have? I mean, black mm. pepper, but I mean, very low grade, you know, almost like uh, the, the powder, yeah, yeah, powder kind of gray dust <laughs> kind yeah. of thing, yeah? yeah. And then, yeah, we had good cinnamon, but cinnamon was uh, that, uh, not used in savory dishes. I mean, uh, it was uh, mainly for desserts and so on. Mm. So I had uh, very, very uh, limited uh, exposure to spices, but yeah, coming here, you know, being hit by all these spices, yeah. In the beginning, I couldn't cope, but uh, <laughs> now I love spices. Yeah, 
And so the fun segue in this chapter, mm-hmm. we, we start there. Um, and then you kind of point out that um, many people will know that the spice trade helped fuel mm. colonialism, helped fuel eventually empire. That's right. Um, but you say that a lesser known story is that it also gave rise to the joint stock company. Exactly, yeah. Some people won't even know what a joint stock company yeah. is. Could you explain like basically how that happened, what a joint stock company is, yeah. and also why that matters? Yeah. Yeah, so at the beginning of uh, capitalism, you know, the, all these companies had uh, what we call unlimited liability these days, you know. So the, basically you start business and you, of course, that uh, many businesses have to borrow to expand and uh, invest and so on. And if something goes wrong, the creditors uh, will come and not only take uh, whatever machines and tools uh, and so on that that, uh, you have uh, in your company, they will take all your personal property Mm. because you are basically, you have to pay back everything you own by using everything you have. So, I mean, a lot of uh, people would then, you know, have to sell their house and furniture and pots and pans and many of them actually ended up in, ended up, uh, in yeah debtors prison yeah, yeah. so that in the beginning of uh, capitalism business was a very risky proposition yeah? mm. now when the european countries that uh, wanted to engage in this uh, long distance uh, trade in search of spices and gold and silver and so on you know, I mean, the, these uh, voyages were very, very dangerous. You know? mm. uh, I mean, a lot of them uh, didn't come back. You know? And, you know, a lot of uh, ventures uh, had to be somehow, uh, therefore, a lot of ventures had to involve uh, the, a lot of capital. You, know? you need huge amount of money to secure this uh, the fleet of ships and mm. You know, provision them and pay the good captains and sailors and so on. So, I mean, it was impossible to do it uh, on the basis of the individual savings or mm. even a partnership of uh, a few people. So mm. people developed this idea of creating this uh, limited liability company in which uh, you, as an investor, will lose only the money that you have invested in there mm. and your personal properties are not affected. So the people don't have to the worry about going to prison due to business failure. Eh? Mm-hmm. So this uh, enabled these companies to mobilize a huge amount of uh, capital because uh, a lot of people are willing to say, yeah, I mean, if it's uh, just that money, I'm willing to invest. Yeah? Right, it allows uh, some degree of risk. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah 10,000 pounds yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But if you tell me that uh, by investing in the money, I'm risking my own pots and pans and I'm not <laughs> personal gonna, freedom, yeah. no, no <laughs> way. Yeah? Yeah. So this that, uh, enabled uh, some of these uh, very risky colonial ventures and long-distance uh, trades that, uh, to become financially feasible. And yeah, the most uh, successful uh, of those uh, early limited liability companies, which are called joint stock companies, because uh, what they do is that uh, they say, okay, uh, this company has, uh, say, the one million pound asset, and Mm. we are going to, you know, divide it into one million stocks or shares Mm -hmm. and sell each of these uh, shares at one pound, yeah? Mm-hmm. So if uh, that, uh, you want to buy 10,000 of them, uh, give us uh, 10,000 pounds, yeah? If you want 5,000 of them, give us uh, 5,000 pounds and so on, yeah? So this is uh, the, why it's uh, called joint stock company because uh, the, you basically 
mm. put your stock together and then yeah, you create the company. Now, the most successful uh, joint stock companies were the English at the East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, which uh, respectively ran uh, the colonies of India and Indonesia for 100, 200 years. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the colonialism initially was uh, the really business. You know? mm -hmm. It was the companies who ran the colonies, not uh, the British you know, uh, government. You know? mm -hmm. So all that fancy story about that Queen Victoria being made the Empress of India, that what happened only because the British government that took over the British colonies yeah. in India from East India Company. Mm. Before that, you know, despite being uh, the sovereign of uh, Britain, Queen Victoria uh, had no claim about uh, India. Mm. Anyway, so that, uh, initially, you know, people were skeptical about this idea of limited liability companies because, I mean, Adam Smith was uh, one of the skeptics and he pointed out that, look, uh, if you let people manage uh, the, a company in which they have only, I don't know, 10% stake or 20% stake because uh, the, the rest of the money came from all these uh, shareholders. These people are going to run their businesses in a way that uh, involves uh, excessive uh, risk-taking because uh, they are doing it with other people's money. Mm -hmm. So the initially, governments were reluctant to give a license for joint stock company or limited liability except for these big projects of uh, national political importance uh, like you know colonial management and long-distance uh, trade. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the 19th century, I mean, there was clamor for a generalization of uh, limited liability, meaning that, you know, you will be allowed to set up a limited li liability company if you meet some minimum conditions, yeah? mm -hmm. rather than having to apply to the king and, you know, waiting for his favor, yeah? mm -hmm. because uh, by the time, but the scale of capital that uh, companies need became huge. Yeah? Mm. So the initially, you know, if you are, I don't know, the, making some textile with, you know, 100 workers, uh, the 20 machines, you know, maybe you can do it uh, through a partnership of but, uh, three yeah, yeah. Uh, people. But if you are building a factory and exactly having, yeah. building a factory, the producing railway carriages mm. and, you know, the petrochemicals and the steel and automobile, mm. you know, there's no way that uh, any personal fortune that can do this. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So there was a clamoring for making a limited liability a general the, the thing. And yeah, this happened. I mean, Britain was the first, but throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, throughout the other uh, rich countries of today. And yeah, I mean, the, this is uh, now the main form of uh, business organization. Yeah? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's end with this. Mm. I mean, your book and your work in general mm. is often pushing back against what's often called the Washington Consensus yeah. or, or form of globalization that we've been talking about a little bit here that involves free trade, free markets, and yeah. so on. I'm wondering um, what in this work, what in Edible Economics, this book that we're talking about today, is relevant to a developed uh, economy like the UK? What kind of lessons are there for the British state today? Mm. Yeah, no, actually, this book... Uh I mean, of course, that uh, given my own uh, interest and expertise, uh, there's a lot about 
the developing world, but you know, the book has uh, topics that are very relevant for developed countries as well. So there's a chapter on chicken, which uh, talks about inequality. You know, there's a chapter called uh, strawberry that uh, talks about automation. You know, there's a chapter on chili that talks about the importance of care work, which Mm. has been revealed through the COVID pandemic. You know, there's a chapter on uh, Lyme that talks about climate change. Uh, so yeah, there, there are many topics uh, that deal with things that are more of a concern uh, for the developed countries than the mm. developing countries. So yeah, I mean, there'll be plenty for everyone. That, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, like, I don't know, a food court, you know, that you can come and eat uh, what you want, yeah? <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, it's a really, really great book. Um, Edible Economics, it came out in October last year, I believe. Right. Um, so you can find that online or in a bookstore now. Hajun Chang, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you. 